Thanks, Joel. And uh, find, a, find a scripture to look at there. We're in a pretty vast passage of scripture this morning. I want to bring out three themes from three chapters. So I'm not going to read the whole text, obviously, for time's sake. But if you do have a chance uh, today, um, why don't you go ahead and read those three chapters and try and get some of the detail down um, from, those, from the narrative storyline there. I know it'll be very helpful in understanding the principles that I'm about to share with you. We don't do this in, in church very often, um, but I'm going to encourage you right now, just keep your finger in your Bible, stand up really quickly, and greet the person that is around you or the people that are around you. Just real quick, just take a few minutes for that. That's, uh, that's great. If I don't bring that to an end now, that could continue for a while. I just thought in light of the sermon title for today, which is Befriend, it might be good for you to just uh, say hello to somebody around you. Um, the reality is that in that moment that we just experienced, In a room this size, I am confident that there were many of you that felt awkward, that this whole, you know, privacy space had just been invaded by somebody else. And I want to try in a moment to just unpack um, a storyline here of the most, one of the most intimate and famous friendships found in Scripture, and I'm trusting that the the verses of the Bible will be a help to you, perhaps, as we uncover the value of, uh, of friendship in general, but Um, Really, Christian friendship is what the the focus of this uh, first portion of the text is all about. So let's look at at the the Word of God. Um, Chapter 18, and let's uh, look at verses 1 through 5, just as an introduction here to this massive text. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This is Jonathan and David now. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. This is a fulfilled promise of what Samuel had said way back, saying if you, if you take a king for yourselves, this will be one of the fruits of that kingship. The king will take your sons away. That's exactly what happened there to David. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, a further step in this friendship, because he loved him as his own soul. The same phrase repeated. And Jonathan stripped himself, this is a symbol of now um, the friendship, the covenant made, stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword, which by the way was one of the only few swords in the the land at the time, Uh, events have been explained previously in the book, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So basically everybody. I mean, the whole whole countryside is covered with this rumor of how impressed they were with David. First point I'd like to make or speak about, this little heading rather than a point, is genuine friendship. 
Take time today to consider this friendship, and it, it really does last over the, these three chapters, um, and specifically spoken about in chapter 18. What an incredible friendship between Jonathan and David. When we think of the word befriend, I would guarantee that most of us think about it in terms of Facebook, right? To befriend somebody on Facebook. Well, this Bible passage tells us a little bit about friendship, and I I believe with all my heart, this is something we need to learn um, today. David started his new therapy role in the courts of the king, and it was a music therapy. Whenever the king got mad, um, and, and I've invited discussion about this over coffee, and some have taken that up with me to talk about the, the, this evil spirit sent from God to now torment Saul. When this happened, of course, he got mad and outraged. And in those moments, they would call upon David to play his harp to calm him down. And in the process of this therapy going on, of course, the prince, Jonathan, now heir to the throne, got to know David, and the Bible says that their friendship kind of kicked it off very quickly, and they became true friends. It's the kind of friendship that we all long for. It's the kind of friendship that um, is made possible, I believe, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not just talking about between Christians here. Any friendship enjoyed in this world is um, as a result of the purchase of that friendship at the cross of Jesus Christ. I'll be happy to explain that to you if that sounds uh, obscure or weird, but any goodness that we experience in this world rather than the penalties of hell are purchased by the cross, so any friendship is purchased by Jesus, but Christian friendship at the depths that are described here is a friendship that was bought by Jesus and the gospel makes that possible on this earth. It's a grace of God extended to humanity. This is the kind of friendship that goes beyond this world, by the way, that as we go into eternity spent with God as believers, not true of those that spend eternity separated from God, because that is spoken about in the Bible clearly as, a, as an isolation, a loneliness, uh, an experience that will be endured by yourself. But those that go to glory, the Bible speaks about as enjoying this friendship, this brotherhood, this sisterhood into glory, something beyond this world. Now notice how this friendship is described though. There are four little points that are made just in the the few verses that I spoke about. In verse one, the souls of both David and and Jonathan were knit together. When they should have been rivals, think about it, the, the prince who had now taken on the army of the Philistines by himself with his armor bearer. I'm talking about Jonathan now, okay? Don't get confused. Jonathan, with his armor bearer, go over and they make this incredible dent in the Philistines. I mean, he was a hero. he now is uh, rivaled by the big D, the, the giant slayer, David, in the headline news. You would imagine that there would be nothing but um, this tension between the two heroes of the day. But that's not what you find. When they meet each other, there's this knitting or this binding, there's another way to translate that word, of these souls together. It's The kind of friendship we experience in this world where I do like you do in a friendship, where the same authority is respected between two people. And of course, in in Christian authority, we come under the word of God, and so we enjoy this depth of submission to authority. Same zeal sometimes in friendship, same aspirations or values. And again, I want to put a plug in for Christian friendship. As we, we grow in the Lord, we 
grow in our aspirations being Christ-like and aspirations that attain to things beyond this earth. So great aspirations. And when two people come together in a Christian friendship, they start to enjoy these kinds of eternal aspirations and goals. Their souls were knit together, something we can enjoy today. The second description is that they loved each other with their, as if they were loving their own soul. Now, when I thought about those words carefully, it brought hints of the same language that was described um, of relationship in the New Testament. When, when Jesus would sum up the law of God, he would say, love God and then love your neighbor. And the little suffix is added, love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting. That the same tones are found in the descriptions of the relationship that Jonathan had with David, who we know to be a biblical type of Jesus in the Old Testament, talking about typology. To love your neighbor as yourself now lived out in this relationship, David with Jonathan. It's the kind of love that we describe or, or teach as self-sacrificing love, ultimately exemplified on the cross of Jesus as he would lay down his life for another, lay down his life for you and I. That's the kind of love that's spoken about here, a love of the soul. Thirdly, this friendship is described this way. Jonathan made a covenant with David. This was a commitment-based relationship where there was loyalties established in the relationship. Very formalized in these few verses, but in relationships today as well, our relationships are deepened as the loyalty is established one person to another. Jonathan had power, more so than David at this point. Jonathan had position, more so than David at this point. But he's the one that initiated the covenant and says, listen, in this description of handing over the armor and the royal robes, what he was saying was, I'm royalty and you are shepherd, but now as I give this to you, what I'm saying is we are equals. We are equals. There's no longer a disparity between our rank, as it were. Beautiful image here of what, what Jonathan was saying in terms of bringing this, this friendship to an, e an, even, an even level in covenant with each other. And then as you go through these chapters 19 and 20, we see more of this language of loyalty and commitment come out of the text as Jonathan time and time again stands up for David. And he does so in risky confrontations that at times would have, you know, been those kind of situations that could have cost him his life. Yet Jonathan stands up for David time and time again. That's how the friendship of this, um, of this text is described in these few chapters. Now, coming to our world. In our world, we live in a atmosphere of privacy. I talked about it in the introduction today, and, and, I, and I know that for, for many in this room, there would have been that bubble of privacy that's, that's put there, that's enjoyed, it's bred into us, actually, from the, the culture and the society in which we live. We have gated communities, we have oasis homes. And what I mean by that is, at certain times in history, there would have been public places that were frequented by people. On a weekly basis, you would go down to the, how's this for an expression, public pool. When last did you go to a public pool? Okay, we don't go to public pools anymore. Now we have home theaters. And the language itself of these concepts and ideas in our culture speak of this independence, and it's praised, the self-reliance, which is praised in community. We, we live in a society that is riddled with individualism. We're trying to boot governments out of our private life, which is the actual definition of this term, 
But individualism and existing on, in your independent self is something praiseworthy, it's virtuous in our culture. Another one is isolation. Isolation sometimes which is very real, or isolation sometimes which is perceived in our mind. But this is a big struggle in the, in the if I had to take all the, the content of our mind struggles, our, our brain struggles, um, our heart struggles, and put them on a table, isolation, loneliness, these are real things that people struggle with, where, where folk live in a very little or, or sometimes not, no connection with their society or with their community. Migration is another factor that I want to point to. I've just been brainstorming, um, just meditating on this passage and the struggles that we have that are in opposition with friendship, and migration came up in my mind. How that, the general stats I think show every four years somebody's making a move. And when that happens, it's hard to put roots deep, isn't it? And, and some of you are nodding because you understand that you have these friends for a certain season and then they drift off and it's very difficult. I mean, you can say what you like about befriending somebody on Facebook. It's very difficult to keep this kind of soul-connected, intimate relationship going with somebody through electronic devices, which leads me to the next point, technology. Technology is breeding this, um, this false idea of being able to take a relationship deep through a, a device or something other where the reality is that people are struggling more and more to actually engage relationships at the first step level. Just making that conversation is extremely difficult today, a whole lot more difficult than it was maybe a generation or two ago, previous or prior to um, all our, our devices, as an example. The last one that I want to mention is suspicion. When, when two guys start hanging out together and two girls start hanging out together, there's measures of suspicion. In fact, it's very difficult to read this passage. With, it's actually, in my opinion today, it's unavoidable to read this passage without bringing into it nuances, misconceived ideas about the relationship that's going on here between David and Jonathan. I mean, the language itself, even directly translated from the Hebrew, outside of our society's context, rather in a Hebrew context, is jarring when you first read about their love for each other, their soul connection, and even the covenant that was made in this text. So I must say, I have to, as a, as a preacher, I must say that this text has been used by the gay community to support same-sex union. I don't regard um, same-sex union to be marriage, because God is the one that instituted that, um, that particular union between two people and labeled it marriage. Um, between a, a man and a woman. And so I, I've labeled it rather same-sex union. And so all, all, that, all that is, from all that I've learned in the text, talking about the context here of Judaism and early Christianity, when I, when I put that all on the table, everything that I've read, I can't find a hint of controversy and history at all to the fact that uh, homosexual sexual activity and union was forbidden in Scripture. It, it seems clear through the history for us to just understand the context of this friendship, that the law was, was established in Leviticus, that when a man lay with, a, with another man as if he was lying with a woman, this was sin. And there's never, it doesn't seem a hint of a, of a, of a question or a kickback on, the, on this to be a, under, understood completely. Um, in light of what is, what is said here regarding the relationship between David and Jonathan. I believe this text here is a picture of genuine same-sex friendship. 
and something that we can learn from, I believe, and must learn from today. It's something that is, I think, forfeited, something that is ignored as a grace given by God, something that is not enjoyed, given by God to be an absolute joy on this earth. So let's learn about it. May I suggest, in light of this passage, that we have a ways to go as a culture. May I suggest that we have a a distance to travel in growing in these areas. I can't speak for everybody here, obviously, um, but I say with confidence that this kind of friendship as spoken about here, when I read these chapters and try to immerse myself in what is going on here between David and Jonathan, this kind of friendship is extremely rare in our world. Sad. It's really sad. That we are not enjoying these graces given by God to the, to the nth degree like is suggested by this passage. This kind of friendship goes beyond we friend and face, friends on Facebook. This goes beyond just having personalities that are similar. This text goes beyond having similar interests. So many would define their friendship as, with somebody as being, you know, we have same interests. We, we have the same interest in dogs. We have the same interest in mountain biking or, or something other. It might be history or literature. This friendship goes way beyond that. Sadly, that our friend, sadly today, our friendships go just as far as some of these things. Personality, you know, personalities that get along or interests that are the same or convenience. We have a friendship of convenience. You, you can, do some, you can do some, provide some kind of service. I can provide some kind of skill. And so our friendship ends right there at the level of convenience. This is a relationship through which God can be enjoyed on this earth. This is a relationship through which his word can be lived out. It really is the, the pinnacle of what it means to be united in soul and enjoy friendship whilst on this earth. So I want to give you a couple of tips. A few of us um, in the church, a couple of men uh, from this congregation and myself meet on a Wednesday morning, and we've been going through a book um, called Disciplines of a Godly Man by Kent Hughes. And in that book, there is a chapter, we haven't got to that point yet, but there's a chapter on friendship, and I, I read through that really quickly in preparing for today, and then added my own little two cents as well, and I've put a few little tips on paper to take home. Number one, sign up to do church. As we grow in friendship, as we deepen our relationships, through which some have said that we will reach um, the place that God wants us to reach in terms of our godliness. God has given us relationships in like a, like a pot. And as we, we dive into this and we, we grow in this and we cook in this pot in relationship, what is produced, what is cooked in the, at the end of the day is ultimately a godly individual. This is the way God has designed Christianity to work, in community. So why not sign up to do church? Not just to come to church, but to do church. I'm talking about enjoying fellowship, being part of a life group in this congregation where relationships can be taken a whole lot deeper than they can ever possibly go on a Sunday morning. Maybe making yourself vulnerable to a place, to a level where you haven't gone before, outside of the bubble of your privacy, now signing up to do church. And all the ministries of our church are designed for this. That's why maybe at times you feel awkward and vulnerable because they're designed to encourage fellowship, which is deeper than friendship. It is an exploration of God's word and God himself and enjoying this in relationship. Another tip that I wrote down was to work on being friendly. I've had... Not a whole lot, but I've had a handful of people through the years that have come to me and said, you know, Pastor, um, I just find that 
that I'm lonely and I, and I have a sense of not belonging. So I'm going to probably change churches, if you don't mind, to go to another church because I just don't feel like I belong. And my reaction is always one of deep sadness to understand that when that person moves to another church, they're going to experience exactly the same thing. Because I've realized over the time that I've known them that they're not that friendly. And it's a skill that needs to be learned. So here's another tip for you on a, on a more deeper level. Maybe work at conversation. Maybe take some time to work on conversation. And the best thing that I've learned through, through my little life is to ask questions. It's amazing. Just to approach any stranger you like. Try, try this afternoon if you like, or sometime during this week. Approach a stranger and just start asking questions and allow a conversation to grow. It might be awkward at first because our whole culture is not that good at this. But as you begin to ask questions, you will find somebody will begin to open up and a conversation will start. And you will find that over a period of time, time will lapse and you wouldn't have interjected a word into this conversation, but it's just this pouring out of a longingness just to expose oneself in friendship and being friendly. And I do, I do realize that this is difficult for some of you. I do. Amber and I uh, don't struggle in this department. Um, Amber and I are always being critical, being criticized by others as, you know, volunteering too much information. So this is not a struggle, but I do realize on the other side of the spectrum, this is hard. This is work. That's why I say work at being friendly. Put in the effort um, in terms of conversation. Another tip that I wrote down was to serve. Serve a church, at KBC. Most people that struggle with loneliness and a sense of belonging are not serving. This is the reality for pastors as I screen a church. Plug in and serve. It can be something simple, like just coming a little bit early on a Sunday morning to serve tea. The most simple of things. Or something, you know, administrative behind the scenes. But very soon you'll find yourself a part of a team and you'll sense that you belong. And there's a contribution that you are making, and it's one of eternal value, which deepens relationships. It, 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 like I said a little bit earlier, there's this, this, common, you know, this common aspiration, which I think will, will go a long way in, in forging friendships um, here in the church. A couple of more tips that I just want to throw out there. You can take them for what they are worth. Sign up for a mission trip. Some of the most lasting and deepened relationships I've ever made have been on, on mission for God in a difficult place. It really does um, solidify uh, friendships. Encourage others. Uh, at our um, last Sunday evening service last week, I, I've made this plea that when we come to church, we, we, we mustn't just come to gain, but we must come prepared to give. And this is a very easy way to give. To think about a, a Theo who has been struggling or, or someone other that has had a real hardship in life and just come and say, you know what, I was reading in my quiet time this week and I came across this verse and I just, I feel that I, I want to just share the verse with you to encourage you. And if that's too hard, maybe just throw it into a WhatsApp or into an SMS and just say, look, I've been thinking about you today. I had a quiet time this morning reading the scriptures and I, I came across this verse and I think it's going to be a blessing to you. And we just come to church with this arsenal of things that we've prepared for people to share over coffee, to share over tea. And suddenly our coming to gain becomes a coming to give and a coming to minister. That's what it means to, I believe, minister in the spirit as the spirit leads us to be a blessing one to another. Encourage, just start at that point, encourage. Very soon you'll find yourself teaching and elaborating on the scriptures and really building people up in their faith. Our world is marked by rejection, amen? It's just the walls everywhere. It's part of the sinful effect, I believe, of the fall. And so why don't we be a people that are, are accepting of others? And I wanna just make this very, very clear. Accepting others is not always tolerance. Don't make a mistake of thinking the two are, are synonyms. We can be accepting, but still yet not tolerate some of the sin of others. But we must accept. 
And so let's be thinking of specific ways that we can accept those that are different to us in various categories of life. Open your home. Our culture will say, rather create an oasis at home for those that are very close to yourself. So don't go to the public pool, build a pool at home, and then there's this you know, walled area, this private area where you can be yourself and alone and isolated and whatever else. Why don't you break down and open up those walls? And invite strangers in. Invite them into your home and make that a place of hospitality where Jesus is present. And the last little tip that I have is pray. I want to leave that, I left it to last for a reason because this is a spiritual endeavor. If there's going to be a soul connection with somebody, we need to be committing our friendships to the Lord in prayer. And if you are struggling, if you're feeling lonely or that you don't belong or that it's just not going well with friends, you've been let down or hurt, abused, man, take it to the Lord and pray. Pray that God would bless conversations, that God would bless friendships, that He would deepen relationships so that we can start as a congregation to enjoy the blessings of community. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed that. A genuine friend. And I pray that as we continue through this book, maybe some more of that friendship would come to light. Number two, a non-threatening foe. A non-threatening foe. Chapter 19. And I'll, I'll just push ahead here a little bit quicker. It is a fool's errand to oppose the will of God. Amen? Do you agree? I mean, fools try to take God on. But I want to say this as well, in light of what's going on here, it is a fool's errand to oppose those who find themselves in the will of God. That doesn't always look like that. Persecution is real. And hardship and trial and the pressures placed on those that follow the Lord in the center of His will are real. But here is an example, a teaching from the Bible that explains that it is a fool's errand to oppose those who are in the will or are living according to the will of God. Chapter 9 can be summed up this way, and I'll do it very quickly. David was rescued four times, rescued from Saul's plan to kill him, and he was rescued by Jonathan's words. Jonathan came to dad and said, hey man, what, is, what has David done? Come on man, he's up on the guy. And, da and Saul took his advice, and he was rescued from potential death by the words of Jonathan. Second rescue happens when Saul's spear is flying through the air, and David is rescued by just a simple ducking of his head. It was an evasive ducking of the head, fast enough to get out of the way of the spear, as Saul tried to pin him, literally, from the, the Hebrew, pin him against the wall. The third rescue happens when the bodyguards of Saul are sent to get David, third time, and this time, a, a faithful wife, Michael, who is Saul's daughter, Jonathan's sister, now, through her deception, which is an interesting topic of debate, through her deception, saves David's life a third time. And then fourth, Saul is rescued from Saul, I mean, David is rescued from Saul himself, and this time God steps in. By God's Spirit, overcoming Saul, he begins to prophesy, you can read all about that in chapter 19, he begins to prophesy, and the result is that he's unable to now inflict any kind of harm on David. This is the picture. Saul has all the military strength. He has the spear. Let me put it in contrast. Saul has all the military strength, and David is, he has a committed friend and a loyal wife, is the, is the, the other side of the coin. Saul is the one that has the spear, while David has an old-fashioned guitar. 
Saul is the one who has troops of men that are sent out to do his dirty work. And David is the one that has one guy that is loyal to him, and that is the old prophet named Samuel. And that's where David runs. Saul runs to the shelter of his troops, and David runs to the shelter of the prophet. But, but, David was God's anointed. This is the point of the text. Through all this history that's given to us over many, many verses, David is the one that is anointed by God, is chosen by God. God is on his side. David's on God's side. That is the point that is um, emphasized throughout this whole chapter. And just when you think that Saul has David pinned, there is an escape. And it happens over and over again in this cycle of events that happens through the chapter 19. Nothing has changed today, may I declare. Nothing has changed. It often looks like the world has Jesus pinned or the followers of Jesus pinned. I mean, it looked like that on the cross, let's be honest. Jesus is literally pinned to a cross, nails through his hands and through his feet, and the world would declare, we got him pinned. But then there's this glorious escape of resurrection, isn't there? It's the same kind of thing for the followers of Jesus often, and don't be mistaken. Often the followers of Jesus are declared by the world to be pinned through persecution got them finally nailed up against the ropes and there's no escape. But from the vantage point of God, this is never true. Our perspective might be violent persecution of the church, but through God's eyes, we see in the text here, God views things very, very differently. Listen to this quote that I found from John Woodhouse. Those who reject and oppose the lordship of Jesus, this is the control, the, the Jesus being master over their lives, those who had rejected and opposed the lordship of Jesus over their own lives and the advance of the kingdom over the lives of others through persecution of other, or other ways, means, by the, by the proclamation of the gospel, do not necessarily consciously understand that they have set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Through their point of view, it's, they finally got Christians pinned or they finally, you know, been able to squelch the proclamation of the gospel in this world or the prayers of students in schools or the teaching of creation there, university campus. Finally got it pinned, but not according to this verse, not according to this quote, and not according to this text. John Woodhouse would say, no, 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 they often set themselves against the Lord and against his anointing. And may I rep repeat, this is a fool's errand. It's a dangerous thing. You will lose if you put yourself up against the Lord. If you set yourself up against the anointed of God, you will lose. Listen to this verse. Triumphant, victorious verse from the New Testament. Fact. Prophecy of the future, potentially. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There's no rank to touch it. There's no character to come close, to supersede. We're talking about preeminence here. Sovereignty here, highest of all possible positions, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. It's going to happen. Now, you might not believe it, but the Bible declares it to be fact and true, that it's going to happen. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue will confess, will confess that Jesus is Lord. Same word, master, ruler to the glory of God the Father. Just an aside that I think we need to apply to the gospel as I consider these things. Our foe might be real and 
can taste him and feel him and the effects of violence and persecution in the church. But through the, the eyes of the Lord, all that there is in the future is victory. Victory, resurrection kind of victory. It's encouraging just to end there, but I want to say that there's, there's two re reactions. It's interesting to note that there are two reactions that are opposed to each other to the person and the work of David in this passage when I read. I find it extraordinary that Saul knew David yet hated him. And Jonathan knew David yet loved him. The guy was still the same. No difference in their knowledge of who David was in person and his work. And of course, I use those words carefully to try and draw our attention toward the person and the work of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the same two opposing reactions are found to Jesus? He hasn't changed. But yet there are some that hate and some that love Jesus. And they'll be seated beside each other sometimes. The motivation for Saul's hate was fearful jealousy. And the motivation for Jonathan's love was delight in David's goodness. Please pay attention to this. It's the same with Jesus. Some hate him because they are motivated by a similar jealous kind of fear of Jesus. While others are motivated by the delights of his goodness and his grace. And when we explore those things as expounded in scripture or, or, or heralded in scripture, the result can only be one thing. To serve this Jesus faithfully. To sing that song with all your might. To say, Lord, I, I, I owe it all to you. I lay my life down for you in light of what you've done for me and your goodness and your, the delights of you. And this leads me to my last point today. Number three, a faithful follower. A faithful follower. Considering these verses there, or the chapter 19, um, let's just read just chapter, chapter 20. Uh, I want to just read some of these verses, 41 and 42, the last few verses of the text. There. If you've got your Bible open, look at this. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between you and me, between my offspring and your offspring forever, forever. There's hints here of something way bigger than just the David and Jonathan story. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went to or into his own city. Just the way that the whole three chapters would end in this atmosphere of peace. Jonathan epitomizes what I believe is taught in the last chapter of these three, chapter 20. He epitomizes a disciple, a follower of the future king, David. He, he sensed that. I, I have the, the privilege of having the right to the throne. I'm heir to the throne. But David, you're actually going to be king. And I want to recognize that. And so I'm going I'm to follow you as king. I'm going to follow you as the future king. The word forever is used in verse 15 and in verse 42 to expose Jonathan's faith, and this is the concept of the gospel, Jonathan's faith in a future king, which trumped all of his position and his title and his status and his relationship with dad. It trumped all of those things. And this is the, this is the fear component that I want to try and bring out here, and it's really worth noticing. Saul is fearsome. Let's be honest. He's, on, he's a tyrant and he's raging with some kind of evil spirit that takes control of him every now and then. Read the story for yourself if you like. David is fearful of the king, Saul, and rightly so. Spears are throwing, flying through the, uh, the air toward my head. But Jonathan now, in terms of this idea of fear, Jonathan is the one that fears David. He's not fearful of Saul. 
The one whom he recognizes as worthy of fear is David only, understanding that one day the one despised, and this is the beautiful language of the Old Testament, how it ties in with the gospel message of the new. The one despised would be king. The one looked down upon, the shepherd, smelly shepherd from the field, would one day be king. And this was a healthy fear. His respect and his honor and his reverence and his fear, his trembling before David was way more than it would ever be for his father. And this is the point that comes out. Even though the present issues were terrible, they were, they were terrible. Father, throwing spears at best friend and throwing spears at me, which I find interesting a little bit later in the text. He throws a spear at his own son. The situation is terrible. The most important thing was taking the future seriously. And that's what Jonathan did. He took the future seriously and put his trust in the one who would, was once despised but would be king one day. And I want to just encourage this congregation, best one makes peace with the future king. May today be the day that you put your faith in the future king and restore peace in relationship with the future king because the Bible says in Romans 1 that there's enmity with the king as a sinner born in this world. And through Jesus and trust in the Savior, like has been described in, in Mark Coppinger's testimony earlier, put, putting, putting one's trust in the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf on the cross, trusting his work of victory through resurrection and not our own works, man, we can put our trust in the future king and we can take the future seriously. And I want to say this, there's only a limited time. Best one makes peace with the future king while one Whilst one has the chance, I don't know why Amber and I laughed at my language here because I used all this old school language here. I'm not too sure why, but it makes sense. Best we take this opportunity while we have the chance to make right with the future king. Let me talk about this fear for a minute. The fear is a good emotion. It is an emotion that is designed by God, unflawed in creation, to benefit us. Like, for example, if a snake came crawling through the back door, some would experience fear and they'd run away. Simple. We fear ill health, and so we go to the gym, right? We, we fear, what are some of the other examples that I, that I wrote down here? We, we fear poverty, and so we work hard. We, we put our effort in at work because of a, a natural fear that exists. And there's a whole spectrum of different ways that fear can be categorized or, or defined as a good emotion, a healthy emotion. Of course, if it's taken too far, fear can be dangerous. Fear can be very dangerous. It can be exaggerated and it can be imagined. And some of you might be nodding in your heart. Um, just, like, um, just like was testified a little bit earlier, a fear mentioned, struggling with anxiety. I mean, that, that, that is the struggle, is it not? Fear. We've talked about this, how exaggerated things just consume one's mind. It's not even real. It's not even reasonable. <laughs> but they overcome our emotion and it can become dangerous. But fear in itself is a good thing. And I, I was overwhelmed by this little thought from Matthew 10. I don't have the verse in Scripture on the, on the screen because um, I thought about it this morning. Matthew 10, the disciples are sent out for the first time. Disciples are sent out for the first time, followers of Jesus, to be missionaries. And Jesus' words to them, his little parting little shot, was to say, you know what? You may be persecuted. You may be martyred for your faith. But don't fear the one who has some measure of control over your body. Fear rather the one, capital O, God himself, who can send your body and your soul to hell. 
That was his parting shot. And it dawned on me that there is a healthy fear that is necessary in our lives to cause following. This is the motivation speech of God in the flesh. Jesus saying, hey, you want to be motivated in this mission to lay down your life for me? Fear the one who can send your soul to hell. What kind of fear is that? It's the, that fatherly fear. You know, the, the fear that when your father speaks to you and, and you have this healthy respect for him, knowing that this guy's not to be messed with. That's the kind of fear that is spoken about in this text here. That's the kind of authority God has been given as our heavenly father. So fear him. Don't fear the one who has just control over your body. What kind of fear is that? And this will lead, Jesus was saying, this will lead to obedience. This will lead to faithfulness. And the same language, the same idea is found in the text here. The same living out of Matthew 10 is found in Jonathan. Jonathan's saying, I'm going to fear David, even though he's a smelly little, you know, catty-slinging shepherd. That's the guy that needs to be feared, not this, you know, ornately dressed, pompous, full of himself, raging king who's a domineering tyrant. No, the right fears are in place, and I find that interesting. The tension of chapter 20 is Jonathan's loyalty to David, even though it cost him his relationship with his father. He was the king, by the way. Healthy fear for a future king motivated Jonathan to pledge his loyalty to David, and may healthy fear this morning of God motivate us to pledge our loyalty to the king of kings, who is Jesus. Saying about the manger this morning, I about lost it in the pew there, crying. How that our king would come from shepherd background, smelly, who, you know, introduced to the world as a smelly shepherd. We've got to make these connections in the Bible. This is the way I want to end, you know. This is the, the relationship there. Hey, David, speaking to Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan, da dad hates you, man. But just know, just know that he probably hates me first. Can you hear the language of Jesus there? Out of John 15, the world hates you, man. But know that, he is, that the world has hated me first. There's this beautiful picture of Jesus and the church in the language of these three chapters. It happens again where Saul tries to kill David with a spear. And uh, the language could be the same. Hey, Jonathan, oops, sorry, we tried to kill Jonathan. I'm trying to think of the, the picture here. But Jonathan's spear, spear attack happened after David's. And so David could say to Jonathan, Jonathan, don't panic, bro. The spear came at me first. And I, and I couldn't help but remi be reminded of the, the words of John 15. Remember that the, world, the word has said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then surely they will persecute you. It's Jesus' words to us, almost exactly what David would have said to Jonathan. Hey, they're persecuting you, but they've persecuted me first, bro. Who knows? Maybe Jesus was even thinking about Jonathan when he said these words in John, 15, John 14 in the light of this discipleship. I don't know. I, one scholar picked up on this and I was blessed out of my socks. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother, you know this, this, this hectic text? We know that it's there for disparity's sake. Our love and affection for Jesus should be so strong that love for our own parents should be almost considered to be hate in comparison with love for, for, for the Lord, love for Jesus. And so he says, if you don't hate your father and mother in this kind of way, and your wife and your children, your brothers and your sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Who knows? 
Maybe Jesus was thinking about those words of Jonathan, just saying, listen, the hate that I've experienced, I've, I've experienced first. And uh, Jonathan, be encouraged, man. Things might not be going f- so good with, with dad, but your loyalty has been appreciated to the king, to me. Radical discipleship. A faithful follower emerges out of this. And the three points line up, the three chapters line up. That's why I've welded them together. A genuine friendship leads to, a, to understanding a non-threatening foe, which leads to faithful discipleship. Why don't you close your eyes for a minute? Just close your eyes for a minute, right, right where you are. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Maybe today's the day, in light of what has been said here, where you express, maybe for the first time, your love for Jesus. Hey man, I'm not talking about just handshake, befriend on Facebook love. I'm talking about soul love for Jesus. And if you are a believer in the room, no doubt this is the time where you are saying, Lord, I love you. Jesus, I love you. My Savior, I love you. I know you are mine. Maybe today is a day where the Holy Spirit will lay on your heart somebody in the, in the church family or even in society where friendship is necessary, guys. You've been sitting on opposite sides of the church for so long. Today's the day when you walk outside a church and you give somebody a hug and you mean it. You're not scared about what people think. You're gonna draw that person close and you're gonna hug them and say, I love you, my brother. Because you are, you in the same family of faith. It's time to make right. Maybe today's the day that you stop fighting and setting yourself up against the Lord's anointed. Be encouraged by the fact that we're on the winning side. There might be death on a cross in your future. Disciples knew that. Happened for Peter. Death on a cross. Whilst following Jesus. But resurrection comes in the morning. There might be that day where you just say, Lord, you know, even if I lay down my body to those that can hurt my body, my soul is protected by God. And he's the one that's sovereign over those eternal things. Peter chapter one, guarding my soul, guarding my salvation for the day where we see Jesus face to face. Last thing I wanna say is count the cost. For Jonathan, it was costly. Hence all the secret meetings that they have in fields and you can read all about that this afternoon. It was costly. Could cost him his life. But ultimately he put his faith in the future king. And I encourage you today to count the cost, what it's gonna cost you. It might be sore, very painful, but ultimately to be found placing your faith in the future king. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that worship prepared us for this text. God, help us to be good friends. At this level, Lord, I'm thankful right now, just as I'm praying, I just thought about that verse, how that you are regarded in the New Testament as being the friend of sinners. And Lord, being those that have gained so much from being befriended by God as sinners, surely, Lord, surely, surely we we would find it easy to befriend others. Help us, oh God, to befriend And then, Lord, as we pledge our loyalty to you, the future king, may we count the cost. And through our obedience and through our pledge 
our commitment today, would we say, Lord, you are enough. You are worth it. You are worth it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming today.